Welcome to episode 15 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. This show was recorded Monday, April 2nd, 2007. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is a combination of some of the best cycling podcasts and blogs on the internet. Each show brings together some of the most famous voices and writers in cycling for a lively discussion of the current cycling news. Check out our website at www.the-spokesman.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. Welcome to episode 15 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. We have an absolutely full house today. We're going to go down the list as I've got it here on my computer, starting with a new voice on the Spokesman today. It's Jonathan Moss from BikePortland.org. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, David. Good morning. Uh, following that, Tim Grawl from the Crooked Cog Network. Hey, Tim. Good morning. And then another Tim. It's Tim Jackson, the Mozzie guy. Good morning. And finally, from across the pond, from Bike Biz Magazine and QuickRelease.tv, which is now Hamburger Girlless, Carlton Reed. Good afternoon. Good morning and good afternoon. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us this morning. We had a couple of audio issues, but I'm glad that they're all worked out. And let's get started with the show, starting with the fact that the Kevin Bacon of The Spokesman met up with Carlton Reed last week at the Taipei International Cycle Show. And, of course, if you don't know who we're talking about, it's our own Tim Jackson, because we sort of all meet with him individually, but none together. We're hoping that maybe this year, <laughs> maybe this year at Interbike we'll do it. So, gentlemen, I, I was hoping you might want to just give us your perspective on what we're going to be seeing in our local independent bike dealers in the next couple of months. And I think I'd start with Carlton, because Carlton, you covered it from a different perspective than Tim Jackson. Tim was there as a manufacturer and manufacturer's rep. So, Carlton, what did you see there as trends for the coming year? It's difficult to say because normally the, the show is, is packed full of trends, but this, this year it was held a lot later than usual, so all the major uh, bike manufacturers have already specified their bikes, so there was no, there was no reason for a lot of companies to, to be there in effect. It was 40 days beforehand when um, most people had specified their SRAM and their Shimano, etc., so there's there's almost less of a reason for for the Taipei show to exist in in, in many respects. So some major companies aren't, aren't going to show there. So the trends really aren't aren't huge. But there wasn't as much. Oh, it, carbon fiber is is so ubiquitous now. You, you don't actually yeah. know it's there. It's just it's just everywhere, and it's just it's boring. It's, it's, it's wall. It, it's wallpaper. Is what yeah. carbon fiber is. So you've now got to look at um, micro trends within another trend. So one of them perhaps could be um, integration, where a handlebar and a headlamp and a GPS unit are all in one. You know, like the SRAM smart bar of a few years ago, but a, a full bike. So companies like um, Topeak, who's super innovative company, um, has produced this bike called the Django. And that has lots of ports which you clip their products into and out of, and all the electricity and everything is within the frames. So you can't see it, and you, you you clip a fender on, then you take the fender off. You put the LED light on, you take that off, and it, then that attaches to the fender. And it's it's really really interesting uh, whether that would actually get out to to mainstream. I don't know, but they're not the only company doing it. Giant have got a, a City Storm bike which has many of the same integration kind of features already built into it. And then, not at the show, but it, an integration thing was, was Cannondale. Cannondale also have lots and lots of things within their bike integrated within. So maybe we're just seeing this, this, this trend of, of you don't put so many third-party products on your bike anymore. You actually have all the third-party products come with the bike. And that would take away some sales and maybe that's why Topeak are thinking well hang on if that's the the trend we better start making our own bikes. Carlton it's an it's an interesting thing that you're talking about especially when I look at uh, a company that that I used to be very affiliated with um, FSA is now talking about that they're going to have road and mountain groups next year and if you consider all of the other products that they make you could pretty much almost have a, a frame with everything FSA on it. Mm -hmm. Was that something that was, was that something that was talked about at the show? Did FSA make any sort of a showing of of this new group that they're going to be coming out with? 
you know, it's a huge show. So if they did, I apologize, but I didn't see it. But the, there's so many things which you, you never get to see, no matter how many days you walk around a show. But I, I maybe, maybe Tim saw something, but I didn't. Well, Tim, no, I didn't get a chance to. I, I, I met with FSA uh, in Taichung at their, their factory there when I was uh, over there in January. So I, I didn't actually have any meetings scheduled with them during this show. A retailer, bicycle retailer, is actually reporting that uh, it's it's something that that they've been talking about that they're still testing, but something that perhaps isn't quite ready for prime time. I wonder if it's something we'll even see at Interbike. I I like the fact though that we're we're now going to have four major component groups uh, companies out there. Uh, we talk Campy, Shimano, SRAM, and now FSA. I think there's going to be a lot of competition where there wasn't so much competition two or three years ago. Yeah, that's that's a good point, and I, I think that's good overall for the health of the industry, and it, and it shows that the industry is is uh, doing some good stuff because uh, it, financially, I mean, because it's able to afford this kind of growth. Whereas, you know, several years ago, uh, FSA might have wanted to, but they wouldn't have had the capital to to, to pull it off. So I, I think that speaks to the health of the industry. And going to FSA, I think it's awesome that they're trying to throw their hat into this particular ring. I hope that they do what SRAM did, which is, uh, from a marketing standpoint, is just build build the interest up even before there is a product and, and come out very subtly with little hints and, and pieces. Uh, I think SRAM was very successful with that. Hey, Tim, from your perspective, uh, you agree mm -hmm. with Carlton that the Taipei show is a little bit late? Um, well... Yes and no. Uh, for me personally and the bikes that I'm putting together, it is just barely functional for me uh, for new product coming out. Um, there are a couple of doodads that we saw, a couple of vendors that we met with that we may actually be able to uh, utilize some of their product on the, the more uh, on, on the next round of product coming out. Sorry. Um, but outside of that, yeah, it's a little late. It's a little late. So from a bike manufacturer's perspective, what is it that you, why do you go to the Taipei show? Um, again, for me, since it was my first trip, it was largely so that I could get an opportunity to, to get a lay of the land, so to speak, and, and really uh, get a chance to put some more face-to-face -face time with some of my existing vendors and potential new ones. Um, I, I personally believe that that's important to, to having a, a, a good relationship with a vendor. So it was uh, for me, it was more educational than it was business because I went there as a brand manager, uh, whereas my product managers uh, sat in on uh, vendor meetings more than I did. And I actually spent the bulk of the show just walking around, getting a chance to take a look at, at, at stuff that I thought was neat. Now, at, at Interbike, as, as we all know, there's, there's all sorts of different parties and, and things are, that are going on at night. Is it, is it the same atmosphere these days in Taipei? Um, yeah, to, to some degree. Uh, I don't think it's quite as, as raucous as Interbike is for that. It's, it's not like you had a, a list of, oh, well, I could go to 10 different parties tonight, and I think I'll go to this one. Um, you know, that really Tim didn't go to the dancing girls party. This is, he didn't <laughs> no, no, go no. to the right ones. <laughs> I did go to the uh, Velo Welgo party the, the night before the show, which uh, mm. was entertaining. And uh, they did have very, very skinny uh, Taiwanese models carrying around saddles and pedals, which was entertaining. Uh, now, Carlton, you can't let us go with this, that dancing girls comment. Tell, us, tell everybody what you're talking about. Well, at the it was kind of the launch party of the the, the show, and it, it, because I've been to Vegas and because I've, I go to to Eurobike, then I almost think, yeah, that's normal to have dancing girls kicking their legs up, but at a bike show. But all of the people who are, are, have been going to the Taiwan show for many many years, and it was my first one, were saying, wow, they, including you, David, we've never seen dancing girls at Taipei. So the Taipei show, like the the Taiwanese industry in in, in general, is starting to take all these. Um, the U.S. model. Um, maybe next year they'll they'll have a, a an actual demo day so we can get out there on the bikes. But it, it's very much um, marketing themselves, not just having a whole bunch of booths, but actually going out there and, and doing something a bit bit more interesting. And if you'd like yeah, to see the dancing more girls, if you, if you'd like to see the dancing girls, you can see them on Carlton's website, and I'll put a link in the show notes so that everybody can see what we're talking about. 
But yeah, I think you're right, Tim Jackson. They are getting a little bit more sophisticated. It sounds like it sounds very different from the Taipei show of, of 10 years ago that I remember. Yeah, and that's what I've heard. You know, again, I don't have anything to compare it against because I wasn't there 10 years ago. But from from everything that I've heard is that they're they're definitely stepping it up. And I think that that's awesome because they should. You know, I, my my feelings about Taiwan are far from secret. So I, I I'm glad that they're. Uh, doing some things that will help to improve their their image as an industry because they certainly deserve it. Well, we just lost Carlton, but I was going to ask him a little bit about the uh, <laughs> I was going to he ask him, Oh, he'll come back. Uh, it's that uh <laughs> it's that uh, uh British internet access, what can I say? Um yeah. see if I, I'm going to see if I can get him back on. But in the meantime, I was going to ask him about the fact that that uh, John Burke, Trek's president, was there and uh, he gave a speech much like the one that he gave at the bike summit a few weeks ago in Washington, D.C., and, and Carlton videoed it, and it's up on his website. And again, I'll put a link to that. Uh, and then I've got it now up on my website as a podcast so that everybody can hear what uh, Trek's president had to say about the the, the cycling industry and, and their opportunity to become involved in advocacy. And this is one of the reasons why I brought Jonathan on the show. Jonathan Moss is from Bike Portland. Org, and he's also the recent winner of the Alice B. Toclips Award. So, Jonathan, if you would, as I bring Carlton back on, if you'd do me a favor and just tell everybody what uh, Bike Portland is, how it got started, and what the heck an Alice B. Toclips Award is. <laughs> well, sure. Um, well, first of all, an Alice B. Toclips Award is a award given by uh, the Bicycle Transportation Alliance, which is in Oregon. Hi, Ben. You're back, Carlton. Sorry. Oh, hey, Carlton. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jonathan, go, go ahead. <laughs> it's uh, Alice B. Tilkliff's Award is uh, given out every year by the Bicycle Transportation Alliance, which is our statewide advocacy group here in Oregon. Um, they say it goes out to bike heroes who open minds and roads to bicycling. Uh, so they have a, a big party. It's primarily their big fundraiser. It's their big fundraiser night. So it's a chance for all of us bike nerds to show up with like nice clothes and drink wine and have fun. Um, so it was, I think this year there were about 730 people. It was a great night to get everybody under one roof. And I was lucky enough to win one of the five Alice B. Toclips awards that they gave out that night. So I got to go up and talk in front of the crowd. And it was fantastic. It's a very memorable night for me. What does an Alice B. Toclips award look like? Actually, it's it's really cool. It's uh it sits on a wooden pedestal. Uh, it's about six square, you know, I don't know, eight by eight by eight. And on top of the pedestal is a, an NK. What is it? NKS, the old track. You probably know. Too. There you it, go. Oh yeah. It's probably it's, a, it's probably an M MKS with an NJS stamp. Yeah, right. Well, it, it's this really nice pedal with a with a, a toe clip, and it's very sparkly and shiny, and it's a. You know, it's really, it's really a nice, it's a nice thing. Well, that's very cool, dude. You got a photo of that thing and put it on the site. That's awesome. Oh, well, one of my readers said I ought to have like, I just ought to have like a badge on my sidebar that says like Alice B. Toclips winner, and I'm just like, that's not. That's yeah. Not <laughs> I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> well, we're we're gonna say that on the website for the spokesman. So I already uh, have that on my site. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have to be true. <laughs> so. <laughs> So Jonathan, tell us what Bike Portland is, how you got it started, and where and where it's gone. Oh, that's a that's a long conversation. I, the way I describe it now is a daily online news magazine, um, but it's definitely not how it started. It started it started actually as a as a bike blog I used to do for the for the Oregonians website. The Oregonians are big daily newspaper here in Oregon, um, and I started it on their website on their blog before I even knew what a blog was or had ever even done a blog. Started writing on the Oregonians' website, and a few months later, uh, with the help of Tim Grawl and his encouragement uh, to use WordPress and to branch out, I started BikePortland.org in its in its current form, sort of. But in that last year and a half, it's it's changed a lot, and it's grown into um, really more of a, like I said, a daily news site, uh, more of a, an official media source, if you will, uh, as of. Almost going on a year, probably about nine months, I've been devoted to it uh, 100%. Uh, for a long time, I worked on it 100. I worked on it full time with uh, while I was trying to also work on other things, um, and it uh, wasn't necessarily paying all the bills, so to speak. Um, but I figured if I didn't act like it was paying the bills and work on it full time, then it never would. So uh, I cover everything: breaking news to personalities. I do event reports. I've taken 
thousands and thousands and thousands of photos. I've got a huge photo archive. Uh, just about anything that happens on a bike in Portland or around Portland and to a, to a further extent, Oregon nowadays, um, it's, it's fair game on my site. Now, one of the things that everybody says is that Portland is the most one of the most bicycle-friendly cities in America. How true would you say that is these days? I would say that's definitely true. It's I like to say it's got the largest and most diverse and exciting and vibrant bike culture of any city in the world. And some, I say that, and some people, you know, they bristle and they think, "Well, what about Amsterdam? What about these other European cities?" And and my answer is always, "Well, they don't really have the same kind of culture in the sense of how it it's flowering here, which includes art, music, uh, all these other things uh, that don't really happen." in some of these European cities because cycling is just sort of like breathing. We still in America identify as cyclists and still in Portland you still we still identify ourselves as cyclists and so because of that we do have a, a culture around it that's really amazing here. Um, but I also tell people that it's not it's not necessarily all roses here in Portland. We have because of all the things we've done for cycling it's not like we don't have any challenges left. We just have a different set of challenges, and those challenges are, in my opinion, just as big as a city that's just getting started. So for, for me, one of the things that, that you and I were talking about last week when we talked about having you on the show, in, in some ways, cycling advocacy is, is new for me, having just been at the, the National Bike Summit uh, and, and finding that, as you and I talked about, uh, we're all cyclists, but we all have such varied opinions, and, and there's still a lot that we agree on and a lot that we disagree on, and I think that that's, that's what keeps uh, everybody energized, and I think it's good you know, that, that we can have agreements and disagreements. Um, t- tell me we what disagree. You, that, oh, that, that's a funny that's point, funny. because one thing I mentioned in the, the Alice Toe Clips uh, accepted speech that I gave was it, it was funny because over the years there's been um, I think I'm up to almost 16,000 comments in the last year and a half and it really shows that cyclists don't agree about everything <laughs> what do you think yeah. that, what do you, where, where do you find the, the, the biggest agreement where do you find the biggest disagreement oh that's a tough question the biggest agreement I don't know that we all like bikes everything after that <laughs> everything after that is up for argument uh, the biggest disagreement. Some of the huge disagreements are about helmets. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of di- a lot of back and forth about that. Anytime I print a picture, regardless of the topic at hand, if someone's not wearing a helmet, it turns into this huge fiasco. Um, I've had people make me delete pictures of them without a helmet because of all the heat they were taking in the community. Um, helmets is a big thing. The rolling stop sign issue is a huge disagreement within the bike community whether or not we should be able to allow in some form, legal form, the ability to treat stop signs as yields, which is an ongoing conversation here in Portland. Um, those are the two big ones probably, That, but there's just so many. If, you, if you're ever on the site, people find ways to disagree and discuss all sorts of issues. <laughs> do, do you find on your site uh, any disagreements between roadies and mountain bikers? Uh, that that's come up a bit in Portland. We don't have a, uh, a necessarily really huge mountain biking scene. It's something that I feel is is one of the things we really need to work on and getting more mountain biking opportunities in the metro area. So I don't cover that issue a whole lot, but I have covered the issue, which I think is interesting about this difference between transportation cycling, which advocacy is usually uh, consisted of, like as if you. Usually at the National Bike Summit, the topic's more transportation cycling, and I think this year was the first year where the mountain biking advocates, which are the recreational side, came into the conversation. So there have been points on the site where I've talked about those two things, and I actually have people in the community saying, hey, I don't think – I don't think we should be spending any political capital or, or money on this mountain biking thing. That's a recreational use. We need to focus on getting people to work. We need to focus on being safe on the roads. So there is definitely a a back and forth on the, the mountain biking versus the, the commuting. And some people have said, well, hey, mountain bikers, for the most part, uh, are car toppers. They put their bikes on top of their car and they drive to the trail. And that's really against the values of a lot of these transportation cyclists. So as you can tell, there's there's all these different ideas even within within people that lo- love bikes. <laughs> Car yeah, yeah I can. Go ahead, Tim. I'm already like, wait, wait, wait. No, you can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, Tim, do you consider yourself a car topper? Um, 
Well, see, I consider myself both. I mean, a lot of the trails I like to ride are um, an hour away by car. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I throw my uh, bike in my car and I drive for an hour and then I ride my bike. But at the same time, uh, when I'm in town, uh, I use my bike for as much transportation as possible. Um, I mean, actually, I got into it. Me and my wife, I had ridden to the park on Friday and Candace had drove and we got in an argument of whether or not I was going to ride my bike home. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I mean I, th- I I mean I guess we shouldn't be getting into all of these uh, topics, but I think there's just as much need and advocacy for mountain biking as there is for transportation. I I agree definitely, and I only say those things as taking the perspective of comments I've read on the site. So, but is there is there an active rivalry seriously between? No 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 def- definitely not. And and come to think of it, we have some really major sort of jewel-type trails here, trails that go along the river. And there are parking lots near those. And on the weekends with the sun out, they are full of people that have driven there with their bikes that get off and want to ride these trails near the – ride these bike paths near the river and things like that. But um, I'm, I'm just – you know, I brought that up as a matter of things that I've heard discussed sure. on the site. But, yeah. Jonathan, what what did you make of some of the some of the more – prominent speeches at this year's bike summit uh, the the john burke speech the uh, mayor abramson speaks what did what did you make of, of those well they were as they always are with the summit they were very inspiring and there's always a lot of good energy i i didn't see the the louisville mayor's speech because mm-hmm. i was off at a, at a meeting on capitol hill but i did see john burke's uh speech and i found it very interesting is you may have read the the story i did on it as he was saying it a lot of people that I've told that told about uh, his speech, they've said, "Well, those big deal. Those aren't aren't really new ideas. We we all know those things." But the uh, the thing for me that really that really struck me about it is that the way he put it together. And a lot of times we may have ideas floating around our head, but until they're sort of given to us in a very simple and clear and concise way, and all the dots are connected for us, it has a, a much different impact. And I think that's what's that's what happened with John Burke's speech is that these are all issues we know about obesity, we know about congestion, we know about urbanization and bad air quality, but we hear about them in separate conversations. But you hear the president of Trek Bicycle put them together in a nice, clear way with these compelling slides, uh, and coupled with the lack of financial resources from the bicycle industry directed at solving these things, and it makes a really great case. That's why. I sort of call them the Al Gore of the bike industry because sort of like Al Gore, these were issues we, we knew about to a certain extent. We'd heard about global warming, but he's the one that really put it together and made it very simple so that everybody could understand it and had compelling visual things to go along with it. So that was a big that was a big uh, speech at the summit for me that had a, a real impression was, was John Burke's. But it was great too being on Capitol Hill and hearing Earl Blumenauer introduce the Bike Commuter Act. That was that was really fantastic and and especially fun for me as a sort of amateur wannabe journalist because I got his staffers coming up to me and handing me folders and treating me like a real media outlet and I got to go up there and take pictures. So that's always fun when I can act like act like a real journalist. But uh, that that was great and there there were there were a lot of other great speeches that that week. You know, one of the questions that, and, and Tim Grawl, I think you asked me this question, so so maybe you could maybe you could direct it toward Tim. We were talking a little bit about cycling advocacy, and you had a good comment. Um, my question is that I live in a community, and I th- I would guess that most communities uh, around the U.S. in particular, uh, outside of the bigger cities, sometimes have very little uh, bike advocacy or bike use. I mean, I've been, I think I've seen one other guy using his bike as transportation in the past month of me commuting. And so, uh, with, in a city that's, that's growing, but has very little or no, uh, bike presence, uh, as far as using it for transportation. I mean, I would say, uh, in John Burke's speech, he said less than 1% in the U S I would say we're less than a 10% of transportation (laughs) is used on a bike here. So, where do I even start? Where would somebody even start to get something going? I mean, I'm thinking of things like, should I be going to my local like YMCA to try to put something together? Should I be contacting the politicians? Just where where do I start? Ooh, that's a that's a great question. I think the it can't hurt. Everything you do is going to help. Go to the YMCA, talk to friends. But I think 
the biggest thing, and I think the thing that has made Portland what it is for the most part, is I think it starts politically. I think it starts with going to meetings. Um, I think it starts with understanding who in your in your community makes decisions about transportation, knowing who those people are, knowing when they have their meetings that are public, and showing up to those meetings and saying, hey, I ride a bike. I have a couple of friends that ride bikes. Uh, we'd like to be safer. What are you guys doing for us? What's happening in our city? And if they can't answer you, then you can follow up appropriately. If they can't answer you, then you can help them spread the word about that. Or, but I really think it it starts politically, not only just with not only with your own involvement, but uh, trying to create cycling champions within your city's political structure. That's a huge thing. I mean, you can't underestimate that. Ours in Portland, we were lucky enough to have that happen thirty some years ago. With with really, and it doesn't have to necessarily start with politicians that understand cycling, but politicians that understand how to make progressive decisions about how people move around the city. Ours primarily started with people that you know weren't into building this huge mega freeway back in the 70s and they they organized and these were these were transportation advocates and politicians and they said you know we're not going to build this huge freeway through our neighborhoods and they essentially stopped the big mountain hood freeway project and they used all that federal hundreds of millions of dollars in federal money and they spread it around to thousands of tiny little bicycle pedestrian projects and to eventually making the light rail which which portland has so political leadership is huge so you need to sort of get involved in that in that respect and every city's got public meetings every city's got a way to get involved with that sort of thing and of course the other thing is to start a blog and start writing about what you're doing um that's that's pretty key as far as i'm concerned so remember that tim start a blog Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't think you need a huge, vibrant bike community or bike culture um, to start to start a blog and just start writing about. I mean, if you're riding a bike, you've got the material to get things going and to do a, do a professional job at it. Everybody you meet at the city, all these any transportation people, any pol- political people, it it helps when you can say, "Hey," and I also write about this on my website. It gives them a little bit of. It gives you more accountability and credibility, I think, if you can say, hey, I'm writing about this stuff, and hey, I took a picture of – can I put your picture up there? And you just start you just start documenting. I mean you got, I don't have to tell all you guys. Uh, we're all documenters here, but that is really key. And what about local bike summits? Because uh, you know we were at the National Bike Summit, uh, but one of the things that was mentioned there was having local bike summits. Any advice – to to people who are out there in their community and they're having transportation issues and issues with cars and bikes any ideas for them about starting their own lo- local bike summits yeah i think that would that could be a really great idea and i think you'll find even in communities that don't have an established cycling community necessarily there are a lot of people that that do ride bikes uh, probably recreationally um, i mean in america we have this weird irony of being both this, this small minority as far as how we're thought of in the transportation mix, but we're also this ma- majority in the sense that everybody's ridden a bike most likely. Almost every person in America has ridden a bicycle at one point. So I think as far as getting a local bike summit together, try to tap tap into that, and you don't necessarily um, have to talk about you know making a city bike friendly at a bike summit. You can just talk about bicycles and just um, get people together. Go to the YMCA, go to any kind of recreational riding clubs there are, and you can just get people together. Um, you know, it's all about synergy and leveraging relationships, uh, and that, that goes for no matter, I think, no matter how small the community is. Any other questions, guys, for Jonathan about the whole issue of, of cycling advocacy? John, when do you plan to run for mayor? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> That's funny. Um, there's or have you uh, been nominated already? There's some, that's funny because I just down, I was down in Salem uh, last week, but I think like the fourth or fifth time this month. Look, just I've been following legislative issues real closely in, in uh, Oregon bicycle related legislative issues this session, and and uh, Senator Atkinson, who's a Oregon state senator, said, "Hey, when are you gonna when are you gonna be running for office? I'm seeing you down here so much." And ah, uh, there you go. So it's pretty funny, and some, a couple other people call me the mayor of Bike Portland, which I think is kind of mm-hmm. funny. <laughs> but I have no designs of becoming politically active in that sense. It's much too – it's just too crazy, and I like what I'm doing right now. 
Hey, Jonathan, how, how do people, if people want to support you, because I can tell this is your day job, this is what you're doing 100% of your time. If people yep. want to support what you're doing, how do they go about doing that? Well, I have a, I use PayPal, I have a PayPal button on my site, um, and that's that's probably the best way. And if people want to use my contact form and get in touch with me, I can tell them my home address, and they can send me a check if they'd like. And I also have um, some cool stuff you can look at on my store. I, I've made a series of postcards that I sell in some, in some local bike shops and local grocery stores here in Portland, and I've got some stickers that I can sell as well. Um, but, yeah, those, those are basically the ways now, and I'm, I'm working on making a little more uh, – making it easier for people to get involved in that, in that respect with the site because, um, yeah, that, that's a big part of it. And if people were interested in starting a site like Bike Portland, you know, Bike Phoenix or Bike whoever, would, would you be willing to help them out with something like that? Yeah, definitely. And I've I've already helped several people um, get started on things. There's there's velosydney.org and bikeseattle.org. Uh, there's I think there's a few others, but I'd be I'd be glad to help help give some people advice for sure. Oh, that's great. We we appreciate it. And listen, we're gonna we're gonna move on uh, in our topics. If you'd like to stick around and feel free to jump into the conversation, we'd love it. Thanks, Evan. Thanks, guys, for having me. This is great. Oh, it's our pleasure. So stick around. We're gonna we're gonna move on to something completely, completely different, and and it's it's of course a Tim Jackson and Carlton Reed show once again because we're gonna talk about the track world. So uh, Tim, why don't you let us know what's going on there? Oh, geez, what wasn't going on? Come on, David, you don't have all this stuff memorized yet. <laughs> I'm getting. Uh, okay, okay. I guess we can live with that. Um, yeah, the. Uh, 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 Track World Championships uh, were just the, the 29th through April 1st, so uh, we now have all of our new world champions on the track. And, uh, yeah, since I'm a, a track fanatic, that's uh, something that I followed fairly closely. Um, but one of, the, one of the things that was recent news out of that that uh, I thought was, was pretty funny is that um, you know, Australia walks out of the world championships with with several medals uh number two in the medal tally behind britain of course carlton <laughs> and uh people are questioning whether or not the the australian uh track program can pull it off when it comes time for the olympics in 2008 because they were so dominant in 2004 at the uh, athens games so everybody is is questioning whether the Australian program is falling apart, and, and I just I, I find it laughable considering that the U.S. was happy as could be in taking two medals at this World Championships. Carlton, any comment about the U.K. team? Well, we copied the American system, uh, the Australian system, I should say. So we we took Don't copy their the system. American one, please. Yeah, no, we 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 copied that Australian Institute of Sport system, just made it better, and uh, made it more Australian. And uh, the Australians made it, and then pumped in a load of cash. You know, we've got the the lottery across here, um, and people pay their 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 one pound for their lottery ticket per week. Some of them make uh, millions; uh, most of them naturally don't. But an awful lot of that money now goes into sport in the UK, and I think cycling is the second or third biggest recipient of all of that uh, cash. So we can afford, and it's a wonderfully um, luxurious situation to be in, we can actually afford yeah. to, to cherry-pick the best athletes and give them lots of money to, to live. So they're not having to, to do their day jobs. They, their cycling is their day job. And even if you had all that, you probably wouldn't still get the success. But there's been a few other things that... Uh, there's a guy called David Brailsford. He's the performance director of British Cycling. If he was a CEO in any company, he would be he would rise right to the top of any major corporation because he's put systems in place that no matter how many coaches come and go, the system is just rock hard and is very, very uh, goal-focused. So all these athletes are very much aiming at uh, getting medals at Beijing because medals uh, bring more cash in and British Cycling has has generated this this way of, of getting more and more cash in and I think at the, the Olympics cycling is now uh, set to be uh, Great Britain's biggest medal uh, prospect 
which will bring even more cash in. So it's this self-perpetuating circle. It'll just keep on getting better, and uh, we will continue to crush the uh, the Americans. <laughs> uh, yes, you will. Uh, sadly, <laughs> it's very true. You will. Oh, and I gotta know, where does British cycling keep coming up with these really cute girls? I don't get it. I mean, Victoria Victoria, Victoria Pendleton Victoria, is is, she's such is a gorgeous. Doll. Yeah, and so is Nicole yep. Cook. I, the two the two of them. I, you know, if there was ever going to be a poster campaign for British cycling, those two should be it. Well, then, and I guess for the ladies, probably Chris Hoy, since the guy's just huge. Oh, he's fantastic. His his muscular always comes you, across. You, you, he's such a nice you, guy too. No, I'm just no. you just you just see him in his uh, his skin suit, and it's like it, that is superhero stuff. He is he is Superman. You could you could film him. Sorry, I'm just enjoying the cuckoo. <laughs> <laughs> Which one are we talking about? The one on my collar or Carlton? (laughs) No comment. That's a Skype noise, yeah? You just just add that in. Yeah, speaking of of Skype noise, give me uh, sorry listeners, but here comes some more Skype noises. Uh, I'm I'm bringing Jonathan back on the call. He he dropped off and he wanted to stay with us. So hang on one second as we bring him back on. And, And as we do, hey, Jonathan, thanks for coming back. And uh, and uh, and as we we do bring Jonathan back, Carlton, I have to ask you a question because um, uh, uh, and and Tim, don't get mad at me, but track racing here in the United States is not the hugest of spectator sports. In other words, I mean, it's not something you hear about all the time. I mean, you don't even, you rarely see it even talked about in in Sal's column uh, in uh, in the USA Today. So, mm. Carlton, is track racing um, more popular in the UK in Europe in general? It's a, it's a minority sport in the UK, but that could be changing because we're so bad at every other sport. Here's a sport that we're good at. So here's my, my plea to all the, the, the BBC uh, sports wallers is forget the cricket, forget the, the soccer. We're rubbish at those things. We are world beaters at cycling. Get those guys on TV. At the weekend, actually yesterday, which was Sunday, um, there was huge coverage on terrestrial BBC television of the, there was about two, three hours of the, the track world championships. And the BBC seemed to be getting more into it, partially because they are, sadly, losing football uh, to the, the, the cable and satellite. So they have got to fill in with other sports but also because we really are good at it. So they've, they are now cottoning on to this. Newspapers haven't yet. They will still go with how bad we are in our last cricket match, and then you might get, oh, yeah, we won 15,000 goals in cycling, you know, like on, on back in the, the, the back of the newspaper. So it's, it's TV we're aiming at now. Yeah, I wish we could do the same here, because track cycling really is an awesome spectator sport, and you figure track cycling used to be in the the late 1800s, well, not late 1800s, but in the early 1900s, was the biggest spectator sport in the U.S., and the athletes who raced on the track made far more money than any other professional athletes. They were were the kings of sport. One of the reasons it is so exciting, and I just watch my kids, who are not huge into watching cycling for cycling's sake, but th- these events take over two, three minutes, some of the, 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 the shorter events, and even the long events are over in 15 minutes. So for, from a television perspective, you've got event after event after event. You've got uh, medal prospects, and you've got pure excitement. You've got some – I was slow-mowing the crashes. The crashes are just amazing with all these uh, oh, light things Zion. coming off. <laughs> what is this, Poor NASCAR? Just, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See now, this is why we need Donna on the show because that's her sport. Well, What's funny is that crash. I shouldn't say it's funny, but there were there were two crashes that took place at those World Championships with guys that I've raced with here. That it was just it was heartbreaking. Travis Smith of Canada, who I've raced with a mm. couple of times here, super nice guy, and Josiah Ng of Malaysia, who is actually from Southern California, who I've raced with for years. And you know, both of these guys I've I've banged off of in Kieran races here in the states, and to see these guys go down there was just heartbreaking because I'm always rooting for the the guys I know. Mm-hmm. It's like Jamie Staff, I you know, Staff raced for Haro many years ago, and I've talked to the man. Oh, yeah. He's a yeah. super nice guy, and it's just golly, you know, want to see those those folks do well. 
Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to let Tim Jackson go. I know Tim's got to take the kids to school, and if you want to know what that looks like, go to his website, and you can see, <laughs> <laughs> you can see his daily yeah, drive picture. Uh, Tim, thanks a lot for joining us, as always. Let everybody know real quickly where they can hear from you, and give us a quick cycling tip. You're not getting out of here without one. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. It's Mozzieguy at uh, mozzieguy.blogspot.com. They can also find me at my uh, bicycle marketing uh, site, bicyclemarketingwatch.blogspot, or just uh, shut up and drink Kool-Aid. And, of course, they can find me anywhere uh, at Mozzie Bicycles because uh, that's, that's pretty much where I make my noise. And as far as uh, a tip goes for today, oh, man. Uh, let's see. One of the things that I have done is I have uh, taken... Uh, an old plastic patch kit box or uh, like an airborne container and stuff that with a cotton ball at the bottom and then drop in my aspirin or Tylenol or whatever. And Testosterone? Yeah, well, you know, whatever you need, whatever mm -hmm. gets you over the hump. Uh, yeah. And I keep yeah. that in my saddlebag because how many times have you been on a ride where you've been out long enough and maybe you're starting to get uh, a headache or some neck pain or lower back pain or knee pain? That way I have it handy and it doesn't ruin a ride. You're now excused. Woohoo! <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Have a good day. Thank you, guys. Sorry, I got to run. All right, see ya. Bye. All right. Well, let's move on real quick to our, our final topic for the day, and then we'll get to everybody's cycling tips. And, and Jonathan, I hope you've, you've got one prepared. I'm working on it. All right, cool. Um, you know, I noticed that uh, we, I, I think we've talked about this before, and if we haven't, I'll, I'll just talk about it real quickly. And that is the fact that um, the the Tour of Georgia, which used to be the Ford Tour of Georgia, is without a title sponsor this year. As a matter of fact, the, the state of Georgia actually is earmarking a million dollars of taxpayer money to go to the Tour of Georgia this year. And it looks like so far the show will go on. But now we hear that the Tour of Utah is at least postponed and I suppose on the verge of possible cancellation because they're having sponsorship issues. And I suppose in, in some ways, uh, Jonathan, this might even be something that, that could dovetail with some of the things that you talk about. Where are the sponsor dollars going? Uh, are, why aren't they coming to cycling? Uh, I, I wonder what's going on. I, it's hard to say. I think, I think one thing is that you know, Lance isn't racing anymore. I think much of the enthusiasm and money and excitement around road cycling in this country was created by Lance Armstrong. I think that goes without saying. Each year that he doesn't race, we get further from that. And I think what we're seeing is is possibly it's it's a lot more difficult than, than people think to engage this sort of ultra elite part of the cycling world because not everybody's able to relate to that. I don't know. Maybe cycling's different from other sports in that where you have the success of the NFL, even though everyone, most people watching are never going to play football at that level, uh, it's still a huge deal where cycling, maybe it's not playing out like that. I, I know that perhaps if, if we were focusing more on the participation side and not so much the elite level racing side, maybe maybe they would have more success. But I, I don't know. I mean, it takes an insane amount of money. I think the only race that's really on the upswing is, is probably the Tour of California, and they just happen to be bankrolled by one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. So they're okay. But other than that, you know, it's a lot of money, and I think it doesn't reflect in the amount of numbers uh, that – of people that are racing as far so I think because of Lance I think maybe the sponsorship dollars and the corporate interest was ahead of where the rest of the country actually is in amount of people that want to watch bike racing you know it's, and Discovery Channel's not going to be sponsoring the team next come next year uh, and it's a little bit depressing because after coming off of an amazing tour of California uh, to find that, that these other major races in the United States are having issues and, is, is a little bit depressing and actually I have some some breaking news that I haven't necessarily confirmed but I do know is going to happen and that is that uh, Nike has uh, decided to drop their entire cycling line so wow. they were Whoa. that's a good that's a good example of something where um, they got into it essentially around Lance and around Discovery and they had a lot of synergy going with Trek Bicycle Company and they as of you know Monday I think as of today and they're based here in Beaverton, so it's kind of a local company. And I got I got a local tip from somebody that that worked there, but um, they they're essentially saying we're not going to do cycling anymore. So that's that's kind of a I think a good example. Um, 
it's it's just not quite as mature of a market as maybe we were all fooled into thinking when when Lance was racing and everybody was so excited. I think we have a long ways to go to establish it as a as a mainstream sport that American corporations can get behind. See, Carlton, aren't you glad you stuck around for that pit of news? I'm typing it in as we speak. I knew you were. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can leave a donation in my on my website. <laughs> my my PayPal will be busy this afternoon. Jonathan. See, Carlton's as as Tim's going to drop his kids off to school. Carlton's getting ready to pick his kids up from school. Carlton, we'll get you out of here quickly, but I have one question for Tim Grawl. Are you seeing this these issues in mountain biking? I mean, is it, um, it, is mountain biking having a problem with sponsorship? Um, one thing, uh, to be honest, I don't keep up with it, with the racing aspect of mountain biking all that much. Most of my side is the consumerism side. Right. Uh, but as far as, uh, races go and everything, I haven't seen any huge drops in, uh, sponsorship. Um, I don't know, uh, from everything I'm seeing and from everything I'm reading, mountain bike is still on the, uh, growth path. And again, we aren't coming off a huge, uh, loss such as Lance Armstrong. We aren't dealing with as much bad, uh, press with doping and that sort of thing. So, uh, if you look at mountain biking, I, I don't think it, it's, uh, it doesn't have big things to come off of. And I think it's still growing. So I, I see sponsorship as, uh, as on the upswing. And plus a lot of the sponsorship, since most of the races are pretty small, a lot of the sponsorship is still from actual bike companies uh, instead of uh, these huge, uh, like Ford or something along those lines. So, uh, I mean, you look at like maybe the Subaru team or something like that, the Subaru, I think, Trek team or something like that. Uh, but other than that, most things are just sponsored by other bike companies. Bike companies. So, uh, obviously, they have a vested interest to stay involved. Yeah, the dollars are smaller is what you're saying also. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, because Carlton has to leave, we're gonna, and because we've been going for 45 minutes, I think it's time to sort of uh, get toward the end. So, Carlton, before you go, what's your cycling tip of the week? My tip is go sign up and get tips from roadbikerider.com. They have a weekly newsletter, and there's tips on there. But if I can nick one from there, <laughs> uh, the latest one, and I'm going to have to get after Nick, you know, uh, is pack latex gloves in your bag so when you're doing a roadside repair you don't have to get oily there you go i thought that was okay that's not a bad tip and, and since you've yeah. got to go carlton real quick let everybody know where they can find you uh in two minutes at school uh it's uh, bikebiz.com which is where i've just done the nike story which i love nike's website business website is nikebiz.com cracking um and it's quickrelease.tv and my email address is coltonreed at mac.com Carlton, thanks for, for joining us today. I'm going to let you drop off the call, and uh, we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you. All right, here we go. Coming up next, Tim Grawl. What's your – you know what? We're just going to get everybody out the same way today. What's your cycling tip of the week, and where can people find you? Uh, my cycling tip would be uh, on your mountain bike. Have you ever tried lock-on grips? Uh, I don't like most of the grips that come on your bike. They move around, they'll slide off, they'll pop off the end, uh, or they're just too, I feel like I don't have a good grip. And so a while ago, I switched over to Lizard Skin's lock-on grips, and uh, they're really, really good. And plus, uh, since they bolt on, you don't have to pry and pull and pop or grease your grips off. You just loosen the bolts and pull them right off your bars. So try out lock-on grips. And then to find me, you can go to crookedcog.com or crookedcogpodcast.com and send me an email to tim at crookedcog.com or look me up in about a week and I'll be out at Sea Otter and track me down and uh, say hi. And Tim Jackson's going to be there too, so it'll be the Tim and Tim show. That's 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 true. Hey, Tim, you know, it's funny you mentioned the lock-on grips because uh, way back when, when I was doing marketing in the bike business, I was doing work for ODI, which I think is a fairly well-known uh, handlebar grip manufacturer. And uh, Joe Hollingsworth and Dave Grimes came to me with this idea of their lock-on grips. And at first I thought, I don't know if this is going to be something that's going to catch on. And it really has. And I think that it's something that, that everybody can, uh, can get behind. And I think that's a great tip. Well, good. Jonathan, any cycling tips for us? Oh, cycling tips. See, I don't do much cycling anymore because I'm working all the time. But uh, I think... My tip, let's see, I'll do like a cheesy sort of life lesson tip. How about shift before you get to the hill? You and know I what? That, I know that's a great tip. Are you kidding? I, th I think that applies not just to cycling but to life. So plan ahead, shift before you get to the hill. 
<laughs> and tell everybody, <laughs> tell everybody where they can find your website and how they can contact you. You can find my website at bikeportland.org, and I have a contact form you can get to right there. You can send an email to Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at bikeportland.org. That's great. And by the way, it's been a pleasure having you on, and you are welcome back on The Spokesman any time you'd like to come back on the show. Thanks, David. It was great. Oh, it's great having you on. And my cycling tip of the week, I don't think I've mentioned this on this show before, at least I hope not, because I'd hate to recycle a tip, but it's it's really a simple one. Uh, there's a company out there called Road ID, and they make a product that you can put on your ankle, you can put on your wrist, you can wear on a, on a necklace, and it simply says who you are, uh, how your how you can be your, your emergency contacts can be reached, and if you have any allergies to medicine and things like that, because God forbid you ever go down on your bike, uh, the last thing you want is for you, your your loved ones not to be contacted, and you don't want to get something that you're going to be allergic to. I don't per- personally use Road ID. I actually use regular military dog tags uh, that I wear on every single ride. Again, even if I'm just going down to the grocery store, because you never know what's going to happen, and you want to make sure that uh, your loved ones can be contacted if you ever should have a problem. So it's simply carry something durable on you that will identify you, give your drug allergies, and make sure that uh, people can be contacted if you should be hurt, and God forbid you should be knocked out. And again, I'm David Bernstein from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com, and my email address is thefredcast at gmail.com. I want to thank everyone for being on the show, even though they've had to drop off right and left as we've been going, because we got a little bit of a late start today. So that's Tim Jackson, Tim Grawl, Carlton Reed, and today Jonathan Moss from Bike Portland. Thank you all for being on the show, and to the listeners, Thanks for listening to The Spokesman. Thanks for staying subscribed. If you'd like to go to our website for show notes, it's www.the-spokesman.com. Until next time, get out there and ride.